0: I'm Kate Martin Williams.
1: I'm Fulu.
0: And this is Effing Shakespeare Shorts. Hey gang, it's the Effing Shakespeare Virtual Book Tour edition. We wanted to get out there and see what's happening in the land of books. Talk with authors who have books out now, write this second when it's very hard to be out in the world with a brand new book because you can't actually be out in the world. And one of those people who is all dressed up with a fancy new book and nowhere to go is the incredible Lee Madalone. Her new book, Homemaking, is a sucker punch of gorgeousness. I was able to dip in and read a bit of it and loved loved the opening and all the pages after. In fact, I have a deep connection to the Blue Ridge Mountains where some of this novel takes place as my grandparents lived at the foot of the Appalachian Trail. In the Blue Ridge of North Georgia, so in a way, this felt a little bit like home for me too. I cannot wait to hear more from you, Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. Yeah,, uh, where are you talking to us from let's
1: let's just start there and kind of uh, lay the groundwork well indoors, like everyone else in <laughs> my apartment in Greenville, South Carolina, I teach at Clemson University, so um yeah, I live about 40 minutes from there. Uh, and generally I am in a classroom, but right now I am at home teaching. So, And we actually were supposed to talk at
0: AWP, but that didn't happen. What have you been able, I guess, to read or write or... Or do I don't know, bake in the time (laughs) since A.W.P., which seems like 450 years ago?
1: Yeah, a long time ago. Lots of baking and cooking. I I actually had a chance to do an event in Charleston, South Carolina before this all happened. And I somewhat, I guess, fortuitously bought one of the Alison Roman (laughs) Roman cookbooks and have been cooking my way through that, which has been actually a good distraction from things so oh my gosh how fantastic and I am reading a variety of things for my classes and then you know like the I'm teaching Soulmaj Sharif's collection of poetry look and so I'm rereading Mm. that and then I'm reading the Sontag biography that just came out recently and then I'm reading St. Augustine's Confessions I'm very distracted I think like everyone else (laughs) so I, I have my my eyes on a million different things so cookbooks and
0: then you know a little bit of light Sontag. and <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, it's so, you got to like, have the high and low. yeah you have to have a mix i think
0: i think so yeah i mean before we got on the show i said i couldn't stop eating peanut butter toast but at the same time i'm doing worksheets about figurative language with my kids at the same time mm-hmm. it's like that's that's how it is it's uh, a land
1: of fragmentation right now exactly tell us a little bit about homemaking so it is my first novel, my first publication. It actually came out right before this in February. So I had a chance to have a launch and a and a few events which were really lovely and I'm grateful that I got to do those. Obviously many writers aren't having the opportunity to do those events. So it was nice to connect with friends. I had a launch in New York at Powerhouse in February and that was really beautiful and and some more local events here in the south and so the book is a sh- tight little book i guess how to mm-hmm. describe it it's, i was teaching maggie nelson's bluets and to my honors kids and in one mm-hmm. of their papers they called the bluets form a novelette which i thought was cute <laughs> i think i'm gonna <laughs> steal that to describe my book oh that's really good that's <laughs> For really better good. or worse so <laughs> it's a short book and I think I say this a lot of people I think maybe authors are the worst at describing their own books or maybe it's just me I feel that I'm terrible at describing it but in short I guess I could say that the book is an exploration of home and identity and belonging and how a number of characters are sort of grappling with those concepts in their own individualized ways mm-hmm. so that's broad strokes what the book is about and what it looks like lengthwise, what you would be setting yourself up for. If you picked it up. Yeah. I, it, it's
0: interesting because I was reading some more of it and I have it on Kindle actually. And before I knew it, um, I was 50% into the book. <laughs> so I was, so when you're not holding it in your hand, you don't know the sort of, intuitive heft of it but it does it feel it it sort of washes over you in a super pleasant way especially in this time of distraction so um, I've really been enjoying
1: it do you care to read some for us sure I will read from a section in the book so there are a number of characters around which all of these themes are sort of circulating so there's Chloe there's Sybil and Beau. And the the book alternates between these first person perspectives. And so Chloe is Sybil's daughter. And Chloe is sort of remaking her life and rebuilding a home both literally and figuratively after her husband is diagnosed with cancer and has told her just to sort of leave and start over on your own in the sort of pure space. So this is from page nine of the book very beginning. So I think that's sufficient information to set it up. So I'll just read a bit from that. Again, this is the first section of Chloe. I want to build a home, or rather, I want to take this existing house and turn it into something where happiness can bloom. I will start with one room, stripping the yellowed wallpaper, melting and scrubbing old glue and yellow gloves. Or do I start with the floors? Do I have to refinish the floors first so that the shavings don't scratch up the fresh paint? Maybe I have that backward. Maybe I should paint first and then do the floors so that the paint doesn't drip onto the newly refinished wood. I built a home once, not so long ago, but I have forgotten the how-tos. How to regrout shower tile, how to hang a picture on a stud, as if my brain has decided that recollecting was detrimental to my survival. Someone built this house for a family. I constantly feel like I'm intruding on someone else's domestic life. Every time I forget to turn off the faucet when I'm boiling water, I think that a mother will run over and chastise me. When I play music late at night, I feel like a little boy will come down the stairs, onesied feet patting on the hardwood, and say, I'm trying to sleep. Will you please turn that down? This doesn't feel like my home, I tell people. Part of me knows that this wasn't built for me. There are more rooms in this house than i know what to do with i am responsible for a kitchen and a pantry and a mud room and a garage and a living room and a dining room and a guest room and a guest bathroom and a master bedroom and a master bathroom and even an attic that i can access by pulling on a tattered red string i've only been in the attic once when the realtor first showed me the house i asked her to take me up there so she pulled the red string and we walked up the creaky wooden stairs and ascended into a dark dusty empty space No old trunks or rocking chairs left behind by the former owners. Just vacancy. But I've not been up there since. What would I do if I stepped on a rusty nail and couldn't get back down? Would anyone find me up there? Living alone requires an extra level of pragmatism. Lock the doors. Check the carbon monoxide detector's batteries. Read the labels on the pills before swallowing them in the haze of two in the morning, as there will be no one to find you. It took 10 years for Herman Wallace to decide what he wanted his home to look like. After 30 years in solitary confinement, for a murder he did not commit, Wallace received a letter from an art student at a West Coast collegiate temple. She wanted to know, What kind of house do you, a man who lives in a six-foot-by-nine-foot cell, dream of? While living in a cell at Angola, that notorious modern plantation, he dreamt of tulips, Adirondacks perched on a second-floor balcony, portraits of Tubman, Turner, Brown, a bathtub as big as his cell of confinement. For 10 years, he contemplated what his concept of home looked like. In front of the house, he wrote to her, I have three squares of gardens. The gardens are the easiest to imagine. I would like for guests to smile and walk through flowers all year long. This is my duty, to realize the fullness of this task. Objects contain parts of the people who own them, Though my mother's adoptive mother died before I had a chance to know her, her emerald earrings still gleam with a hint of her cruelty. With Pat, what is left of our philosophical disagreements is contained in a coffee table book of dilapidated barns and wooden houses taken over by grasses and wildflowers. That's something I can't settle with, Pat, my sick husband, once said. The fact that people are obsessed with decaying buildings and dying cities. You can't deny that an old barn is beautiful, I said. But the fact that people find it beautiful says something. People find beauty in loss. At what point does that quest for death become a self-fulfilling prophecy? When people go, the things they leave behind can feel haunted. A father can take your left ventricle and a husband can take your frontal lobe, leaving behind a tea kettle, a lampshade from bed, bath, and beyond. A wooden spoon can hold the existential weight of a family Bible while you turn into a shell. Consider it building a watchtower, I tell people when they ask why I bought a house so close to where Pat and I once shared a home. If he will not let me be with him while he dies, then I can make sure that nothing or no one else can hurt him. From here, I can still feel like I am doing my duty, like I am being the wife. Mom and Beau keep telling me not to rush things. One room at a time, they tell me. But I'm not trying to build an entire city, I tell them. I'm just trying to rearrange these pieces of my life and turn them into something that resembles a home. One room, they reiterate. Start with the space with the small square footage and work up from there. Think of Rome, they say.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. I, I want to know, and maybe these are the same question, but I want to know about the research process. Was that a side hobby for you prior to the book or did the concept for the novel spark this interest and the research unfold from there?
1: I think they, the my interest in architecture and spaces and design, all of that was happening at the same time as I was writing. I think My obsessions tend to overlap with whatever I'm writing about at the time. Mm -hmm. So I just happen to be reading these things like, like a Boussier and Tanizaki and whatever. I mean, I I get, I guess a little, yeah, granular when I'm interested in something, it felt natural that it all came together. It wasn't like I, starting to write a novel about houses and thought, Oh, I need to go out and research houses. I didn't even really set out to write a novel to be frank. So I think that, yeah, it was just a sort of natural process. So coming together of all of my different in- interests at the same time, which is sort of happening with my new project as well. So I think that's just a way I prefer to work mm-hmm. rather than forcing something or saying, I want to write a book about blank and then going out. I would just rather, I guess it not rather, it's just the way my process works is that it comes together mm-hmm. naturally. I think
0: we talk a lot on the show about finding the right book at the right time. And this mm-hmm. is de- definitely the right yeah. book at the right time. I know so many people are sort of re-nesting or uh, redesigning rooms or, you know, conceiving of a way to change their space that, simulates being out in the real world since we have no control outside. Maybe we can control some things inside. And it uh, it was just a, a fantastic echo of that for me to sit down and read. If anyone's out there looking for the right book at the right time, I think this is
1: it. Well, I think that's an interesting thing, what you say about controlling our spaces as a means of sort of, I guess, dealing with a lack of control over other things. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way, because I'm definitely a person who will... Uh, sort of reorganize the same room over and over again, <laughs> and yeah. um, meticulously put things together. And I guess that is a reflection of a sort of control freak aspect of my brain, or as a way of fighting chaos on the outside. But yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah,
0: this is your debut novel. How how did you find your way to Harper Perennial? I felt very lucky
1: to be working with them and my editor Amber Oliver there. So my process to publication, I guess so. I had been publishing in literary magazines for a long time, short, little, weird stories. And my agent, Kylie Raymond, found one of those and found my website and emailed me. It was one of those magical publishing experiences. So um, I had had this happen before and I didn't have a novel. And after a certain amount of time in this world, I knew that an agent would always ask if you had a novel. (laughs) And so when she reached out to me, I actually did have much of this draft complete And so I think after a week or so of talking, I decided it was the right fit, and we were working together. Um, So we spent the summer, I think I signed with her in the spring, and then we spent some of the summer revising, editing, things like that. She's just really, she's a really excellent editorial eye. And so. Is that the summer of last year? um, Or two years ago? I have no sense of time anymore. (laughs) I think it was. (laughs) I sold the novel, not December of 2019, it was 2018. Okay, cool, yeah. So I took a couple months of pitching and I think I was actually at the end of our sort of preliminary list and we were thinking, oh, maybe this is like a weird book and it might not be a big five book. And then I think it was a week after I finished my MFA program and a week before Christmas, which is a weird time in publishing, it's generally pretty quiet. Yeah. This happened with Harper Perennial, sort of a dream so yeah it was just somehow the stars align I don't I never know how any books get published honestly with all the people involved and everything that has to happen at once so I feel very grateful that it happened though
0: yeah that's a great it's a great story we don't we never hear the same story twice on this show so very cool just to sort of round things out I want to know what is giving you hope these days or what's making you laugh or or what is the perfect diversion at this point
1: Mm. I think I live alone so there's a certain level of intensity and solitude I guess that Mm. I am grappling with and so what helps me is I have this standing phone date with my friend in New York she's a writer that I've known for a long time and so we get together and talk a little bit and then we watch an hour of garbage reality tv together Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, so we'll just <laughs> talk. Um, we went through Love is Blind and now we're watching Love Island, which I highly recommend to anyone. Better than Love is Blind? It's. It, I always say this with the utmost respect for the show, but it is much <laughs> trashier <laughs> and there's a million episodes, so you'll never run out. But I think there's something very calming to me about watching something just very frivolous and like people just flirting and wearing skimpy clothes and like, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah. that, that is helping me quite a bit. So I recommend Love Island for sure, to people if you're looking for a distraction. Yeah,
0: and I or, love the twist of watching it with a with someone either on Zoom or whatever, to sort yeah, of- Yeah,
1: that's, that's the socializing we have now, so. Yeah, absolutely. I had wanted to ask some people to like call in, while I was watching a movie on Netflix and like make noise in the background, so it'll be like being in a movie theater, you know. So like, <laughs> can you can you keep quiet, please? Can you keep quiet? <laughs> yeah, a little similitude.
0: Yeah, yeah. Someone was saying on Twitter that they got to the end of was it? Oh my gosh, was it Nick Flynn who said he reached the end of um, Netflix, and it was like Miami Vice nineteen. 19- eighty four little like final episode or something. He like had reached the end. He'd watched all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Oh my gosh. Well Lee, it was wonderful to get to e meet you on the podcast and have you for our inaugural session. And we wish you all the best with homemaking out in the world once it well, it's virtually out there. Everyone can get their hands on it. Can you shout out your favorite indie bookstore in your hometown or any town,
1: there's a number of them around. So, I'll shout out Malaprops in Asheville, yes. North Carolina. That's a great um, bookstore. Yes, it's great. And Hub City Books in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Have, they've been wonderful to me. And here in Greenville, M. Judson. Uh, so, those are my local indies that I really love.
0: Fantastic. Well, good luck to you, Lee, and we'll talk soon.
1: Thanks so much. Effing Shakespeare Shorts is a production of Bloomsday Media, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and me, Fu Lu. Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer. Dark
0: days when nothing seemed quite right But something about the days with you Always make the sky so blue Always seem to make the world so